the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Now, I have to tell you, I'm a little bit frustrated because Clark's birthday was this past week. He took up a couple of vacation days, so he wasn't here. So then I thought Clark's going to be here on Monday. Got a little card, got a cake, you know, the whole thing. Planning on surprising him and everything on the air. Well, Clark is sick on Monday. So I think, okay, Tuesday. Tuesday, he'll come in. We'll do the whole big thing. And then there's an email to the entire staff here saying, we're going to celebrate all the April birthdays on Tuesday. And so there were refreshments brought in, and we had a little celebration for birthdays. So now my whole plan to surprise Clark, to celebrate, to bring out a cake. I bought special candles. That's all ruined. So I'm thinking maybe sometime uh, tomorrow I can do all that in more of a small scale way. But I did want to say happy birthday. I did remember your birthday. I did plan to celebrate your birthday. It just did not work out. But now you get a couple of days celebrations. You can extend the whole thing. Anyway, glad to have you back. I know you're feeling better, although not great. Uh, And happy birthday. I hope you had a good uh, crossing over that that bar that we all cross over if we're fortunate enough to see another year. Well, today there's a lot coming up. We're going to talk with um, John E. Johnson. He's a professor at Western. He's also the author of Under an Open Heaven, A New Way of Life Revealed in John's Gospel. So looking forward to talking with him about that. And then at 5 o'clock, we'll talk with Rachel Bovard. She's the Director of Policy Services and Outreach at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about uh, the effort to avoid a government shutdown. We'll talk with Craig Richardson. He's president of the Energy and Environment Legal Institute for Free Market Environmental um, environmentalism, rather, through strategy litigation. We'll talk about the money behind this past weekend's march and the march that's coming up next weekend on science and the environment. And we'll talk with Ted Brummond, who is the uh, Bromond, rather. He's a senior research fellow in Anglo-American relations at the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the French elections in which the two um, front runners who make it to the runoff advance to the second vote on May the 7th. Um, are a little understood, and we're going to talk about whether or not this is a significant election, not only from our vantage point from this side of the pond, but whether or not this is significant for the EU and, and some other concerns. So that's coming up uh, later on in the 5 o'clock hour as well. I wanted to remind you that today is the deadline to register to vote for the May 16th election. Now, you may be scratching your head, what May 16th election? You probably got the voter guide, the pamphlet already. That should have come in the mail by now, but... Uh, this election on May the 16th is pretty significant. And what sometimes happens when you're, you're uh, advocating for a particular thing, you want to get your, your initiative uh, on a ballot like this one because so few people actually participate. Well, I'll get to that in a moment, but today is the deadline to register to vote in the state of Oregon in the May 16th election that's going to determine the fate of school board members, local bond measures, and other nonpartisan contests. Uh, as well. So voters can register here in Oregon online, provided uh, 
that you have a current Oregon driver's license or a non-driver ID card. You can also go to your local elections office, but you only have until 5 o'clock p.m. tonight to do that. Uh, If you register online, you have up until midnight. If you're not sure if you're registered to vote in Oregon or not, you can check that out online as well. Again, the Secretary of State's office manages all of that. Well, the most expensive measure on the ballot will be the Portland Public Schools $790 million school construction bond. There are school board elections in almost every community. There are questions such as Washington County's police operations levy, Lake Oswego's $187 million school bond, Salem's $62 million public safety bond, and a proposal to grant more independence to Portland City Auditor. Now, turnout in these um, odd-year elections is uh, traditionally, typically low. Uh, Here in Oregon, it's generally very poor. Two years ago, for example, just 22% of voters in Clackamas County cast a ballot. So if you want to pass something that may or may not be very popular, this would be the time to put it on the ballot because you figure far fewer people are going to make a decision that will affect every single person living in that county. Just 18% of Multnomah County voters uh, cast a ballot two years ago. Washington County, 17%. So if you care about your tax rate, if you care about education, if you want to weigh in on your thinking on school board members and so on, this is an election that's very important. Now, in the state of Oregon, of course, we don't go to the polls any longer, and I won't lament that as I do every time I bring it up, but we do get our ballots mailed to us. Now, they can languish on your dining room table. They can end up on the coffee table uh, in with the rest of the junk mail, but there's some important issues there And if we are people who are committed to self-governance, then we need to be uh, informed and weigh in on these issues. You got a voter's pamphlet. Take some time. Read through it. It doesn't take a lot of time, but read through it. Find out what this all means and then cast an informed ballot. So you have until midnight tonight online to register to vote in Oregon. If you haven't already done so or aren't sure, you can also find that out online. Or you have until 5 o'clock, which isn't very long, about 45 minutes to do that at the... um, Uh, county, the local elections office. So check that out if you're not registered to vote. Well, today happens to be Holocaust Remembrance Day, and we're going to take a break here in just a moment. But I wanted to put it into a broader perspective. Maybe I have a little time to do that. Um, The president and others attended events, rightly so, to remember, because there's a phrase that was said at the time that's um, not been applied as vigorously as I, I think was intended at that time, never again. And I was reading Catherine Jean Lopez's piece in National Review. I encourage you to check it out. It's dated April 24th. And she reflects back on a Good Friday in which a rabbi made reference to this phrase, never again. And she writes that if it means anything, it had to uh, mean something today. Uh, these words came from a rabbi who invoked the memory of the Holocaust standing among Christians outside a church in New York on Good Friday evening. This Catholic Church, now being leased to Coptic Christians, was a powerful, prayerful scene of solidarity, an icon of brotherhood. These Christians gathered in response to the recent ISIS attack on churches in Egypt, one of which was an attempt to kill the Coptic Pope. Uh, it surprises, uh, it's surprising, rather, how many people have no idea these attacks even took place. Every day, when it's mentioned in conversation, she finds it... Um, People just have no idea that it happened. Many people are not pleased when you put a spotlight on Christian persecution. There's the mistaken caricature that if we're writing about persecution in the West, we must be talking about someone getting bent out of shape uh, at Christmas time because of a season's greeting sign or display showing Santa instead of Christ child. 
or to make it more seasonal, seeing the Easter Bunny instead of proclamations of resurrection. Some react with revulsion because they assume that persecuted Christians are asking for special privileges. Others don't like giving the impression that Christians look uh, like helpless victims. Hmm. Christians and religious minorities in the Middle East, many are, are suffering, targets of genocide, in fact. They're also some of the most resilient people you could ever meet. They're forgiving, but, they, but not because they're passive victims. They are forgiving because they are beacons of a radical love beyond human understanding. And they know being leaven um, might be the only way to find hope in these situations. A project called Under Caesar's Sword, and make note of that, Under Caesar's Sword, is a joint academic effort to, uh, of both the University of Notre Dame and Georgetown University's Berkeley Center, among others, is heavily focused on these challenges. The group's new report, In Response to Persecution, unpacks just what Christian persecution is, where it can be found, and what Christians are doing in response. Surviving, associating with other faith communities, confronting the challenges of their circumstances head on. Now, some, of course, give their lives for the cause not only of religious freedom, but also human dignity itself, as if the two are separable. Uh, Under Caesar's sword focuses on Christians because they're the most widely targeted religious community suffering terribly, uh, terrible persecution globally. And the report explains, and we'll go to a break. Most of the world's persecution of Christians takes place within a geographic band that begins around Libya, moves eastward to Egypt and the rest of the Middle East, expands north to Russia and south to Sri Lanka, and then proceeds eastward to China, Indonesia and North Korea. Outside of this band are several other oppressive regimes like Cuba. Well, I don't have time to get into all of the report, but I would refer you to the uh, National Review, April 24th, and more importantly, to this report uh, that provides information to better understand what the persecuted church, in other words, other family members, are suffering at the hands of their persecutors and how they are persevering. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after uh, 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Toyota of Vancouver. Also, we're looking forward to a conversation with John E. Johnson. He is the author of Under an Open Heaven, A New Way of Life Revealed in John's Gospel. Looking uh, forward to that. By the way, he's also a professor of theology, a, a pastor, a professor rather of pastoral theology at Western Seminary right here in Portland. Well, Congress is back and they're facing a rather tight deadline to keep the government operating while the president presses uh, harder for some legislative accomplishments, but did relent earlier today on one of them. The week is shaping up to be something of a collision and time is quickly running out. Well, passing funding to avoid a government shutdown appears to be an um, easy task, or at least it appeared to be some weeks ago, but new stumbling blocks were, uh, blocks rather were put into place when the president added some new demands, the border wall, military spending, among others. Government funding ends on Friday. That allows only uh, uh, a couple of full days of legislative activity to add uh, more to Congress's plate. The president told the Associated Press last week that he intends to unveil his plan to overhaul the tax code, another priority for Republicans, but a gesture that caught Republican congressional leaders off guard. Well, all this is making for a very busy week. First of all, you've got the funding of the government because Congress failed to come together on an appropriations bill for the 2017 uh, uh, biennium last time uh, or last year, it passed a short term measure called a continuing resolution, which, of course, they could do again. 
Um, it funds the government uh, at 2016 levels until, well, Friday night. But the continuing resolution runs out, giving Congress a hard deadline to pass a comprehensive funding bill to finish the current fiscal year. We'll see how they do. There's also health care. As if working on the 11th hour to keep the government open wasn't enough, the White House is pushing the House to uh, vote on a Republican health care bill to undo much of Obamacare. The president, who underestimated the ideological split among his House Republicans on the last go-round, and in the Senate as well, would still like them to pass their signature campaign promise repealing Obamacare before his 100th day on Friday. That's pretty much not going to happen. Then there's tax reform. Another wish list item for Republicans is tax reform. And according to the original plan, was supposed to be uh, presented as early as this month or May. But the failure of the health care bill was has complicated the timeline that pushed the tax reform back to the fall. Still, the president's eager for the aura of success, said he would unveil his plan for corporate and individual taxes. I believe that's tomorrow. Then there's the 2018 appropriations. While Congress is still wrangling over 2017 funding, it has to make progress on the 2018 funding. Congress's main responsibility is to fund the government, although you wouldn't know it by observing. And if the Republicans who ran on the platform of fiscal responsibility want to make government funding um, uh, have it in place uh, for the next fiscal year on time, their work on a dozen appropriations bill have to be completed by the 1st of October. Then there's the looming debt ceiling. By August, the government is expected to reach the limit of its ability to borrow money or pay for government programs like Social Security, air traffic controllers, you know, non-essentials like that, forcing Congress to raise the debt ceiling. It's been a controversial vote in recent years as Republicans used it to paint the president at that time, Barack Obama, as fiscally irresponsible and nearly forcing a government shutdown over that. Well, while... um, The deadline isn't pressing at the moment. It's another part of the uh, complicated summer calendar, which is just around the corner. It all uh, will be the first time that Congress will have to uh, uh, make these kinds of decisions under its current configuration. So they will be very busy. My guess is they'll kick the can down the road as they have uh, become quite practiced at doing. And we'll have to uh, bring all of this up again in a very short period of time. Meanwhile, uh, President uh, Trump's request that Congress include the $1.4 billion to fund the beginning of his proposed wall on the U.S.-Mexico border, which during the campaign he declared would be paid for by uh, the Mexican government. He still maintains that um, they're not going to write a check, but there are ways to make them and there actually are ways to make them pay for it, whether or not that actually happens. But the border, uh, the cost of this border wall equals approximately 0.035 percent of what the federal government will spend in total this year. According to the latest estimate of fiscal year 2017, federal spending made by the Congressional Budget Office. It also equals less than the Department of Health and Human Services spends in just 12 hours and less than the Treasury collects in taxes in four hours. Now, that's assuming that the HHS, Health and Human Services, spends money 24 hours a day and that Treasury collects it 24 hours a day. Well, in its baseline budget projections published in January, the CBO estimated that uh, in fiscal 2017, which runs through November, the federal government would collect, there are too many zeros to even try to repeat in taxes and spend another number that is considerably higher than what it will collect. On March 16th, President Trump sent a letter to the House Speaker Paul Ryan requesting certain items be included in the continuing resolution that Congress must pass to fund the government for the remainder of the fiscal year after uh, the current uh, continuing resolution expires on the 28th. The letter requested approximately $1.4 billion for the uh, Trump border wall uh, to a uh, project. 
That has been withdrawn, and he says he would like to do that in in his um, first year. We'll see what happens. But some perspective, approximately 0.035 percent of what the federal government will spend in total this year. Now, that number may not be very meaningful because if you have, uh, you know, a dozen projects that only make up this small percentage of what's collected – uh, and you add them all together, it can end up being quite a bit of money. And when we're facing a looming crisis with Social Security, uh, Medicare, and um, I can't even think of the third uh, program, it's a rather sobering prospect. Well, President Trump announced today the acting deputy commissioner of uh, Customs and Border Protection, Randolph Ailes, uh, would be the new director of the U.S. Uh, Secret Service. He uh, previously led the CBS Air and Marine operations, spent 35 years in the U.S. Marine Corps. He is replacing Joseph Clancy, who retired from the agency a second time in March. He inherits an agency that has been dealing with a series of security and personal issues. Uh, Last month, the man jumped the White House fence and spent 15 minutes roaming the grounds. And of course, there were several incidents under the previous administration. Uh, said the um, House Oversight and Government Reform Committee Chairman Jason Chaffetz in a statement, I applaud Secretary Kelly's decision to appoint a Secret Service director from outside the agency. Well, this decision is consistent with what the committee and protective mission panel recommended years ago. And while he went on to say, I recommend this important step forward, there are still many uh, systematic problems that continue to plague the agency, including a staffing crisis and increasingly demanding investigative missions. We'll see what happens under this new leadership. One man in, another out some time ago, but two senior uh, House lawmakers said today that former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who stepped down, may have violated the law by not disclosing payments for foreign work. Republican Representative Jason Chaffetz and Democratic Representative Elijah Cummings, the chairman of the top de- and top Democrat, respectively, on the Oversight Committee, said classified military documents show Flynn did not ask permission or inform the government about payments he got for appearances before Russian organizations in 2015 and for lobbying that helped Turkey's government. This raises concern whether uh, Flynn violated a constitutional ban on foreign payments to retired military officers, having nothing to do with the administration, but still um, raising questions about uh, his conduct. The law requires him to seek permission from the Secretary of State, the Department of Defense, Chaffetz said. The response we're uh, getting from the agencies is there is no information and that we believe is the potential violation. Chaffetz and Cummings said uh, there was no evidence Flynn uh, complied with federal law. They said Flynn could be criminally prosecuted and they said Flynn should surrender the money he was paid. That money needs to be recovered, said Chaffetz. You simply cannot take money from Russia, Turkey or anybody else. Flynn got tens of thousands of dollars from Russian organizations after a trip in 2015, and his consulting firm accepted $530,000 from a company tied to to Turkey's government. The lawmakers spoke to reporters after members of the Oversight Committee were allowed to review classified documents relating to Flynn's foreign contacts. And claiming the U.S. has been taken advantage of under the Clinton-era NAFTA trade deal, President Trump today, or rather Monday, um, uh, opened a trade war with Canada, announcing a retroactive 20% tax on lumber imports and promising a similar tax on Canadian milk. The president said Canada has treated us very unfairly in impromptu remarks at a reception for conservative journalists. We've been taken so advantage of, he went on to say, speaking in the Roosevelt Room. Well, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who accompanied the president into the reception, said that the uh, contravailing duty 
um, would be retroactive 90 days. He said that was when Canada was warned to stop subsidizing their lumber industry. The contravailing uh, duty is meant to offset that subsidy. Uh, They were on notice, he said. Well, Trump hinted at the coming trade war last week. The president put a job spin on the, uh, the decision which he had planned to announce Tuesday. He's uh, going to, uh, it's going to mean rather that we're doing lumber in our country, he said. What's more, he said, that deregulation efforts are already underway at the Environmental Protection Agency and the Interior Department to open the door to companies logging federal lands. We're going to actually do our own lumber, he said. We will have access to great amounts of lumber, end quote. Great, copious amounts of lumber. I'm looking forward to switching gears. We're going to talk with Professor John E. Johnson. He's the author of Under an Open Heaven, A New Way of Life Revealed in John's Gospel. Oh, how I love John's Gospel. Looking forward to talking with Professor Johnson in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. In the Gospel of John, the first chapter, the 51st verse, Jesus speaking to Nathanael said this, You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What mysterious words these are. Jesus speaking to Nathanael. He was announcing a new order. Life will no longer be the same. And just as the early believers needed a theology to strengthen their soul and steady their nerve in their turbulent times, We, too, need to know that the abundant life under the open heaven John describes is not just conceivable. It's a promise. Well, my next guest is the author of Under an Open Heaven, a new way of life revealed in John's gospel that it's quite possible we may have missed, even though we've studied it. My guest is John E. Johnson. He's an associate professor of pastoral theology at Western Seminary here in Portland. He's a writer and a teaching pastor. He served in various churches, including Trinity International Church in the Hague, Netherlands. He has published articles in, let's see, Biblioteca, uh, Sarka, and Trinity Journal. He joins us today to talk about his book, Under an open heaven as we look at the Gospel of John. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, many of us, uh, particularly at the beginning of our walk of faith, were encouraged to go to the Gospel of John to begin our uh, rudimentary understanding of the Scriptures. Is it possible that even though we might have spent a lot of time in this Gospel, that we might have missed the very thing that your book encourages us to do? Um, to uh, recognize that something new, something dramatically different has happened? Well, I think so. In fact, I've learned uh, over the years that uh, I probably would really hesitate to go to John very early on. In fact, it took me a number of years before I even preached John because I found it such a mysterious gospel. And it wasn't until I saw it as a series of conversations that it began to make sense. So I think starting early on, I think there are a lot of things we would miss. Uh, You write in the early part of the book, before we begin, that we are restricted by lots of things. Many of us live our lives in uh, in our own confined spaces. Describe what you mean by that, because as the title of your book suggests, Under an Open Heaven, there's an expanse that we're not fully taking advantage of or maybe even aware of. Well, I think so. Uh, And I think it's a rather mysterious statement made to Nathaniel in chapter 1, verse 51. And that's why I think that the conversations that follow unpack what that means. And I think in most of those cases, he's talking to people living in rather confined spaces. And uh, he's opening up their vistas. I think a, a classic is the paralytic who's living 
in this very small four-by-eight world. And in each conversation, I think Jesus is pointing back to John one fifty-one. We often use the language of the kingdom of heaven and that that um, heaven has has broken open uh, for us, but don't fully understand what that means. Why do you think it's important for us to grasp uh, what's available to us? Because, uh, as uh, John spoke to Nathaniel, heaven has opened and uh, there are the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Yeah, I think it's because, Georgine, so many of us live rather defeatist lives or mediocre lives. And if I really take serious what John is saying, and which I think all of Scripture affirms, we have this amazing potential in a resurrected life. I think that's why in John fourteen twelve, right in the midst of the conversation with his disciples, he said that you can do, you'll be able to do not only what I've done, but even greater things which almost sounds it almost sounds crazy on the surface, but when you when you look at what the cross and what the ascension and what the resurrection and what Pentecost all have enabled us to do, I think we're just living rather blind to what's possible. Now, why do you think that's the case? Um, I, I would understand if people are not in God's Word and we're, we're not really familiar with what He mm-hmm. said to us there, but for those of us who are students of the Scriptures, how could we miss... Uh, the fullness of what is being spoken to us there? Uh, I think that's a really great question. I think it's something we all have to ask ourselves, uh, because every time I read particularly the book of John, I'm reminded I'm living under an open heaven. And so some of the fears and some of the worries and some of the, even my own uh, lack of imagination can really confine me in. But everything in Scripture tells me um, I just need to step out in greater faith. It sounds rather simplistic, but I, I, I think it's a question God's probably going to ask us when we get to heaven: is, oh, you could have, um, you could have lived a such uh, greater um, imaginative life. I mean, certainly Paul had to be uh, speaking to that in Ephesians three twenty to twenty one. You write in the section titled Mapping Out Our Journey, where you try to familiarize us with the train that the terrain rather that we will encounter. Uh, you describe the Gospel of John in a way that really I've spent, the, in fact, the last several months studying this very gospel. And I had to just stop for a moment and realize I'd missed a lot of what you point out here. You write that God steps into the world he has created, but creation does not even recognize its maker. Jesus, the son of God, comes to his own people, but they have little interest in receiving him. They are off on other priorities. Jesus grew up in a family, but his believing brothers seem to put off uh, to be put off rather by his existence. Think of the irony, the one who is perfect love is dismissed by his closest family. And then you d- you describe some of the paradoxes that we find in the Gospel of John that really caused me to sit for a few moments and uh, and think about how challenging the book really is if we recognize uh, much of what you write here that became immediately familiar to me, but I'd sort of missed in the process. Talk a little bit about the terrain of the Gospel of John for those of us who think we pretty much got it down. Well, I think John writes with tremendous irony, and so I remember Georgine going to seminary, and the first book you you worked your way through in baby Greek is John, because the language, uh, the Greek language, is so much more what rudimentary than other uh, other uh, places in the New Testament, like how Paul uses the Greek. So you're you think right away, oh, this is going to be a simple book, but I think what is maybe one of the most simple books 
from Greek language, the irony is on the theological side, I think it's the most profound book. I remember an author once um, who put it this way, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sort of uh, bottom-up, and John is top-down. And I think that helps frame it for me, because I think the other Gospels start more Bethlehem here. We can see things, but John starts, even in verse 1 of chapter 1, you're realizing you're in a whole different world. Mm -hmm. You also point out that there's a pastoral texture to the Gospel of John uh, Mm -hmm. that you don't find so much in the others. Well, I think so. Let's, if you take, and I don't know anyone can be really conclusive about this, but let's take the author is John, who's uh, now in Ephesus and pastoring in Ephesus. That's how I take it. And I think when he wrote the book of John, he was writing to his audience that are reflected in all of these conversations, because each of the people in each of those conversations one finds in the church. So I think it's an intensely pastoral book. Now, the way your book, Under an Open Heaven, is written, uh, we're really listening in on conversations that Jesus had with many of the characters that we're familiar with from the gospel, from all of the gospels. Um, but you you um, happen to glean more from those conversations than most of us might in passing. Describe the layout of the book, because I think it's very unique uh, for those of us who are at least consider ourselves somewhat familiar with the Gospel of John. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, I had um, I've pastored for 32 years, and John was one of the last books I preached, um, just because I was rather intimidated by the book, honestly, until... I saw it as a series of conversations, and suddenly I could see the book in a whole different way. And when you think about it, every chapter is a conversation, beginning with Nathaniel, then his mother, then Nicodemus, the woman at the well. And when you see the book that way uh, and read the book that way, um, all I can say is it just became so much more alive. So this was like a three-year project for me, uh, and I did spend a lot of time uh, studying, researching, and then pastorally trying to think about it. I didn't want to write simply an academic commentary. Lord knows there are enough of those <laughs> in John, but I wanted to write. Uh, I wanted to write a book that would speak to, hopefully, a serious-minded Christian that just wants to get past the fluff and, and live a serious um, spiritual life. And I think John is just is just written exactly for that. Yeah, yeah. Each chapter um, concludes with questions that facilitate a personal study or group discussion, mm-hmm. again, so that it can be more applicable, so we'll know what to do with what we've just um, considered. And I, I appreciate uh, that that calls us to that kind of serious response, not just an academic pursuit, but a serious response that challenges us uh, to live differently in light of what we, uh, what we find in the Gospel of John. Yes, yeah, and and that's where the editors uh, with Kriegel, I'm so appreciative. They helped me a lot because I we worked back and forth because we wanted to have just the right questions because I don't want people just to move on without seriously stopping to think about what this conversation is asking. And hopefully, not only is it helpful for them, but maybe in a group study, it really facilitates that. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about the book Under an Open Heaven, A New Way of Life Revealed in John's Gospel. My guest is Professor and Pastor John E. Johnson. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing a conversation with pastor, a professor, and author John E. Johnson. He's associate professor of pastoral theology at Western Seminary here in Portland, a writer, a teaching pastor. He served in various churches, including Trinity International Church in The Hague, Netherlands. Uh, he has published articles in a number of publications. Today we're talking about his book, Under an Open Heaven, A New Way of Life Revealed in John's Gospel. What would you say is the biggest misconception we have about John's gospel? Well, perhaps the first is that, it, uh, which we talked about earlier, that it's a natural place to first start in your journey with the Lord. I think we sometimes we, we think of John 3.16 that draws us uh, to John immediately. So I think we sometimes have a misconception that it's a, a fairly simple message. And uh, I mean, there is simplistic aspects to the book, but uh, I would say it's just, it's not a starting point. That I think that's one misconception. Mm-hmm. Now, how does reading the Gospel of John, particularly from the vantage point that you encourage your readers, and that's by analyzing the conversations he had with people who were very low on the social scale to the very height of, of uh, rulers, how can those conversations help us not only better understand what John, through his gospel, is highlighting about the life of Christ, but for us to better understand the depth and breadth of what God has provided for us by opening heaven? Well, I think by making sure that as you read each conversation, you're drawing it back to uh, what I believe is John's purpose, or putting those conversations there in the first place. And that is that Jesus in each situation is uh, drawing um, that person back to something far bigger than themselves. So that, um, you know, let's take the blind man. He's drawing him back to the fact that there is there is a vision that God has for him. Or as I mentioned, the paralytic, there's a larger space. Or it's interesting, the religious leader in John 3, it's ironic, and this is part of John's irony, that only to a religious leader did Jesus ever say, you must be born again. Mm-hmm. Or to, in John 6, the crowd that are there largely because they want a meal ticket, and Jesus draws them to himself um, as the meal they need to have. So in every situation, he's drawing people uh to the fact that heavens have opened, and there's a whole different level of living uh, that you can live. So again, back to John 6, you don't have to live at the level of your bellies. Or as he says to his brothers in John 7, um, there is a cause you can live for that makes your life count. Jesus is incredibly blunt uh, in most of these conversations. While the book is largely about his love, um, He's intensely missional, and that becomes really clear in the book. Now, a couple of conversations I want to highlight. One is the conversation he has with Pilate. That chapter is titled, Love is About Flourishing Under God's Authority. Some might read that that exchange and see this is an unfortunate conversation that doesn't really accomplish uh, anything toward our understanding of of life in it with an open heaven. But so let's talk a little bit about this conversation with this political leader, this ruler who is being manipulated to some degree by uh, the the people, um, who has a conversation but doesn't really recognize to whom he's speaking or bother uh, to wait for an answer to one of the most profound questions he asks in that exchange. 
Well, again, I think Pilate is just another example of Jesus uh, wanting to really open his eyes and offer him a life far bigger than what he can see, but he is so constrained and confined um, by the system he's under that he can't see. And Pilate himself thinks he's in charge and Mm. really has uh, the conversation under control, but it becomes clear that Pilate's not in control at all. Um, So he reminds me of a lot of people today that assume power and politics and control uh, is their domain. And Jesus, again, just uh, uh, completely devastates what Pilate is trying to base his life on. Yeah, it's a a great chapter and a a wonderful reflection on that uh, exchange. In your final chapter um, on the life of uh, the conversation, rather, with Peter, the chapter is titled, Mm -hmm. Life is About Restoration Replacing Failure. Many of us are uh, um, paralyzed by our failures. Uh, We cannot imagine that the thing that we have done could ever really be forgiven to the point where we could uh, be restored. But this conversation with Peter in the 21st uh, chapter of John uh, tells us a lot about um, restoration, replacing failure, failure rather, under an open heaven. Yeah, I think it's great that John, um, as he as he writes this, ends the ends his book with that conversation because it sort of sums up the whole fact that all of us fall short. We all have our own failures. We all uh, don't live the life that we can really live under an open heaven. So I love it how John, uh, in his book, ends up uh, with uh, with underscoring um, that. And it's interesting he chooses as his subject perhaps the person that he uh, he most competed with, because when you look at Peter and John all the way through, there is this this underlying rivalry. Uh, you know, John writes to make. Sh- make it clear that that he's the one Jesus hmm. loved, and he refers to him that way. Mm-hmm. And yet, in, even in John's grace, he wants to, at the end, not leave Peter on a losing, in a losing place, but to underscore God's wonderful grace to say that no matter how deeply we've failed, and few have failed like Peter did, uh, there's always restoration at the end. So, Speaking from a pastoral side, which I think John is doing, it's exactly where he wants to end, just as I think for pastors of churches today. I mean, that's the note you want to leave people on, is that there's there's grace, that that um, because we can often listen to a sermon and feel like, oh, how I've failed, and you never want to leave on that note. You want to always say, yes, but, but there is grace, there is there is a second chapter. There is a new start. And so I think it's marvelous the book ends on that note. Yeah, yeah. Now we're reading um, conversations that took place in an ancient context, and yet there is relevance to contemporary culture. Talk a little bit about how these uh, conversations Jesus had uh, in this gospel uh, are relevant to us today, and we can glean them for uh, insight into his heart. We can trace uh, certainly God's hand through uh, the book as well. Well, let's go back to John 6 for a moment. Mm-hmm. I think that many of those, uh, I think that conversation with that crowd is 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 largely the crowd in our culture today that are, are living largely on, uh, on what they can gain um, uh, at a surface level, at an appetite level, and who are always looking to make someone king. 
uh, and always are about power. And so I look at the conversation Jesus has in John 6 as uh, it's hugely uh, relevant to where our culture is today. And he, he, again, he goes right to the heart of the matter to say what you're searching for. I mean, I can keep feeding you bread, but that's not going to really satisfy you. But it also shows our culture that when you offer what people at the deepest level want, they often turn away. Mm. Isn't that true? Um, What's the invitation that you hope readers will accept when they pick up your book, uh, simply titled Under an Open Heaven? Well, I hope that what happens with them is what I believe has happened to me, that that, uh, oftentimes when I'm out and suddenly when I feel like I'm confined or constricted um, or facing certain limitations that I don't really need to be facing, I'm reminded that's right, the heavens are open. Hmm. And it means I don't have to live this way. It means that fear doesn't have to constrict me. It does. It means that worry doesn't really have a place. It, it, it means that I tend to limit what I think God can do through me. So I just try to, and this is what I hope the reader does, is to finish the book and say, that's right, the heavens are open. It's... Um, and, you know, he uses the language to say uh, they are open and they continue to be open. Uh, he uses the kind of language that says it it continues to the end. Mm. So, so beautiful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about your book and for continuing to minister in our community. I am so uh, grateful for the conversation. Thank you, Georgie. Thank you. Once again, the title of the book, Under an Open Heaven, A New Way of Life Revealed in John's Gospel. I plan on taking it home and reviewing it one chapter at a time and just really pondering what's uh, beautifully written there. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in a commentary, uh, my next guest writes, here we go again. When Congress returns from its recess, which now it has, it faces a potential government shutdown. Lawmakers will have only a few days to prevent the government from running out of money. Members of Congress have known about this deadline since December when they passed the last stopgap funding bill. And the fact that they've again let negotiations wait until the last possible moment shouldn't come as a surprise. They're simply following a disappointing decades-long pattern. Well, the question has been, will there be a government shutdown? You know, the the Democrats were suggesting that they needed to protect abortion uh, business at Planned Parenthood and to stop funding of the wall. It appears at this point that the uh, president has relented somewhat, at least postponing funding of the wall. But here to talk with us about all of these machinations is um, Rachel Bovard. She's the director of policy services and outreach at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, a lot has happened in these few days since Congress returned from its uh, brief recess, two-week recess. Your thoughts on whether or not a potential government shutdown is even now still looming? Well, you never know in Washington anything can happen. That's true. Uh, you know, and there is, a fun, there is a funding deadline on Friday, well, technically Saturday morning at midnight. Uh, but I do think all signs point to a, some kind of deal being struck, whether or not it be a deal that funds the government before Friday or at least passing another short-term extension to give themselves a little bit more time. Um, but like I said, anything can happen, but I don't think right now you know, we're at an impending shutdown. There are a couple of options available. There's the omnibus spending bill, and there's um, also the uh, the option of 
um, uh, of another uh, way of, uh, I can't even think of the name of it, a continuing resolution. Um, what are the benefits and the drawbacks of either one in this context, given the fact that they haven't done what needed to be done in uh, taking each one of these funding bills separately? Right. So either of those options are obviously not ideal for the point you just mentioned. You want to be able to have, you know, these specific funding debates because otherwise how, you know, are you making rational spending decisions if you can't even discuss and debate and learn about, you know, these individual bills. But the omnibus, um, you know, which is what we may see, would be an amalgamation of the 12 spending bills. So instead of them passing them separately, they'd pass all in one giant bill. So that's going to be several thousand pages long, um, probably dumped on the members, you know, at the last minute. Um, and, you know, it's a little bit better of an option than a continuing resolution because it shifts funding priorities. So it recognizes in some cases that more money might need to be, you know, in this account versus another. So funding levels change. The other option that you mentioned is a continuing resolution, which is just a straight funding extension from the previous fiscal year. So nothing changes. Agencies hate this because, you know, their needs change. They need more money here. They need less money here. And the continuing resolution does not allow for that. We're currently operating under a continuing resolution. So I know there's a lot of, um, you know, impetus toward passing something like an omnibus so they can at least change some of those levels. But either of them is not ideal. We're, we're certainly not in the best situation. Now, how long does an omnibus bill um, stand up? I mean, do they have weeks? Do they have months? What What does that Uh, What time does that buy them? So if they pass an omnibus, it would likely be just to the end of the fiscal year, which ends in September. So that's basically, you know, it would get us through to September. A CR, a continuing resolution, you can kind of put any date on it. It could be shorter. It could be longer. But I suspect that it also would go through the end of the fiscal year. So, again, September. So we're not even buying ourselves a year of time here. We're going to be in this exact situation again um, in the fall. As you point out in your commentary, spending bills ideally are considered one at a time so that lawmakers uh, can determine whether or not the funding levels are appropriate, too high, too low, some nuances and, and so on. How how likely are we under this uh, new Republican majority uh, to see that happen finally, uh, assuming, for example, that we uh, get some sort of an extension through the fiscal year? Does there seem to be a, a sense of responsibility that we need to return to the approach uh, that gives us the opportunity to look at each one of these bills separately? Well, if they do that, if they decide to go back to this traditional approach of 12 individual spending bills, they would actually need to start that process almost as soon as they pass this current funding bill because that takes time. You know, it has, they have, bills have to get through the House and then the Senate and then they have to be conferenced, changes worked out. So they'd almost have to start that process immediately. And it is the ideal way to do it. That is the way the framers intended the Congress to work. But unfortunately, you know, there's been this trend for so many years now that this is sort of how it's almost become the de facto standard way that Congress operates. It sort of lurches between funding deadlines without a clear, consistent path, without, you know, any current sort of rational debates. And the result of that is that you have this increased spending on autopilot because you never have time to actually debate it. You never have time for members to actually dig into the details of these programs, recommend changes, um, you know, recommend cuts, recommend increases, whatever it may be. You just never have time anymore. And unfortunately, you know, based on the congressional calendar, that seems to be almost the default mode of Congress. So there are an opportunity for genuine reform. What about um, the president's funding priorities? Uh, is there room for, uh, for that under the, the plans that we've seen over the last, well, since 2009 with this continuing resolution or omnibus way of, of passing a budget? Well, the only way the president's priorities would be funded is in an omnibus where you can make those changes. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is that the president officially transmitted his funding request to Congress on March 16th. 
So you've seen Democrats come out and say, well, these are last-minute requests for wall funding and for defense funding, and that's just inaccurate. I mean, he transmitted these officially in March. Um, but you also haven't seen Congress as a whole pay too much attention to them. And it's, I mean, it's an interesting position for them to be in because back in December, Republicans advocated for this date, for this April date. They said, let's fund the government through April so that the new president, if it's a Republican, can weigh in and we can fund the, the government based on the president's priorities. So that's what they said in December. But now we're in a situation where they don't you know, seem to be paying too much attention to what the president wants. Mm. Uh, you write in your uh, commentary that this political tone deafness isn't going unnoticed by the electorate. And you point to a new Pew Research Center uh, report that shows that Democrats are now the more trusted party when it comes to representing people's views on spending. And that's despite the Obama administration uh, years that added a trillion dollars in taxes, grew the deficit uh, by a breathtaking nine trillion or 86 percent. Uh, that does not bode well, it would appear, uh, for the uh, the Republicans in Washington at this time. No, and it's, it's really quite shocking if you consider that Republicans for you know decades have been viewed as the party of fiscal responsibility, the party of low, lower debt, lower deficit, you know, spending reforms. And now, you know, after eight years of incredibly high spending, I mean, President Obama and the Democrats increased the deficit by 86 percent. They almost doubled it. And yet, you know, Dem- Republicans have so little credibility on keeping their spending promises that voters still trust Democrats more. That is a staggering statistic that I think, you know, really should be a wake-up call for congressional Republicans. Well, it certainly should be, but uh, from your perspective, is it? Has it been? Will it likely be? Well, all signs point to no right now. <laughs> so, you know, that's, it's disheartening to see, you know, the fact that they've known, again, about the spending deadline since last December, and they've chosen to, again, wait until the last minute, you know, so the leadership can draft this bill behind closed doors, drop it on their members and say, no, you can't change it. Otherwise, they'll shut the government down. You know, and this is, again, a trend uh, really sort of is a power play by the leadership to get this bill done and passed. You know, I think you know, conservatives are hopeful that moving forward we'll, for fiscal year 18, we'll start the process of individual appropriations bills. We'll make the spending reforms uh, you know, that, that Republicans ran on, that Republicans promised the voters they would make. Well, only time will will tell. You um, write in closing your commentary, Republicans ran on having the answers to a debt so large it's threatening to overtake the entire country's output. It's time for them to deliver. What seems to be lacking at this point is the will. They certainly have the facility in that they are the majority in both the House and the Senate and uh, occupy the White House. I'd like to be optimistic, but I have to uh, confess that I'm less optimistic than I would like to be. Yeah, you and I both, unfortunately. But here's here's hoping that things will start to turn around soon. Well, hope springs eternal. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Again, Rachel Bovard is the Director of Policy Services and Outreach at the Heritage Foundation on avoiding a government shutdown, which was very likely averted earlier today when the president uh, took funding the border fence, the border wall, off the uh, uh, the agenda. He had said earlier that unless that money was in this uh, Uh, this bill, this process that he would not sign it, uh, he has since backed off of that. Now, whether or not funding Planned Parenthood, or rather defunding Planned Parenthood, is also on the table is not yet clear to me, but the deadline is Saturday morning at, I guess, 12.01. We'll just keep uh, following what happens there uh, in the hours ahead. Uh, We are being assured by Republicans 
uh, Republican leaders that a shutdown will not take place. The Democrats are almost licking their lips, hoping that it will. But with the border wall funding off the table, that's less likely than it was just a few hours ago. Up next, we're going to talk with Craig Richardson. He's the president of the Energy and Environment Legal Institute We're going to, uh, for free market environmentalism through strategic litigation. We're going to talk about the money behind the March on Science or March for Science or the Science March, whatever uh, you want to call it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the People's Climate March, or the March for Science this weekend, isn't about the people. It's about the billionaires who profit from green energy policies, policies rather, while driving others into green energy poverty. Well, the march is being supported by 350.org, an environmental activist organization that's received money from billionaires, environmental activists like Tom Steyer and the Rockefeller Family Foundation, who want to stop the president's rollback of Obama-era regulations because it hurts their bottom line. Well, joining us to talk more about this, uh, elements of all of this that most of us haven't heard anything about, Craig Richardson is the president of the Energy and Environmental Legal Institute. Uh, They stand for free market environmentalism through strategic litigation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, most of us don't know what lays behind some of these big demonstrations, who's funding them, uh, whose bottom line is at stake, and pretty much all we ever hear in popular media uh, is the other side of the story and the villains who don't embrace the same uh, environmental perspective or at least uh, want to be respected for challenging some of the assumptions that are made. Talk a bit about the People's Climate March um, and who's behind it. Well, I mean, you have a, a series of marches that are bookended around this concept of, of International Mother Earth Day, or Earth Day as we call it in the U.S., um, which is kind of last week was the science march, and then Saturday is the climate march. Um, and, and you, you start to see the same cast of characters. I've been in this issue four or five years, and, you know, you start to see the same sorts of people show up. And it's, and it's you know, widespread in terms of people that are actually on the ground. I mean, some of them are actually true believers, and, and you know, this is their cause, which is noble. But then you also get, the, you know, there's the Socialist Party of America. They tend to show up, and then you get just, just anything anti-Trump folks show up. Uh, but I think the bigger issue is what you set up and talked about in the setup. And, you know, who's behind? What, who's the man behind the curtain in all of this? I mean, is this all organic? Does this just happen because there's an outrage in the country like we saw in the 60s? And I'm, you know, I was a kid then, but I remember it. Or, or is this something more orchestrated than that? And, I, and, and we've, as you start to look at the money behind it, you realize that this is just something that's basically a strategy of theirs that they play off. And, they, you know, in energy and environment is one issue we've seen all across the board here, particularly in this uh, new administration. Now, you, um, uh, one of the names that comes up is Bill McKibben. He's an American environmentalist. His organization is called 360.org. Uh, tell us a bit about this organization. Um, it, it has, as was pointed out in a column at the Financial uh, Press, I believe, um, that uh, Financial Post, uh, that has a look and feel of an amateur grassroots operation. But in reality, it's a multi-million dollar campaign run by staff earning six-digit salaries. What do you know about uh, 360.org? 
Yeah, you know, I think what ends up happening is you get into this battle, you start looking at the 360.org and the Sierra Club, and you start to kind of fight at that level. And, and you know, these people are, you know, they appear to be, you know, <laughs> nothing else are kind of ragtag to begin with when you see them in person. And you say, oh, well, this is, you know, this has got to be something homemade, right? And, and then what ends up happening is in McKibben's case and 360.org's case, they've gotten a ton of money from the Rockefeller. Uh, there's several Rockefeller entities. The Rockefellers have multiple foundations that they pour money through to push through their agenda. And they've been getting, you know, tens of millions of dollars over the last decade, essentially to their water. And that's part of how this game is played, as you said. You've got Bill McKidden on the ground floor, and you've got a bunch of these people, 60s leftovers. And it looks like they're all fighting for, you know, in their mind, truth, justice, and the American way. And, and in fact, you see that they're really just being used as pawns in what is a larger political theater being orchestrated by billionaires who have a lot at stake in this game. And that's, that's the part that the media itself... Um, the corporate media, as I call them, uh, well, they're at the end of it. And they try to make it. They bend over backwards to try to make this seem like great division in America and look at all these people who are out fighting for their rights. And, and in fact, what you have is professional protesters being funded by billionaires to push a hmm. philosophical and financial political agenda. And we never hear about those billionaires. We only hear about um, oil. And if there's any associate with any dissenters who might challenge the conclusions that are drawn, uh, their connection with uh, with big oil and the fact that the profits are behind it is always emphasized, but never on the other side of the ledger, as you've just pointed out. Yeah, that's the frustrating thing. My first question is people, and I, I've been inside the swamp, if you will, inside the D.C. Uh, beltway. I mean, my first question, how did you get here? I mean, did you walk? Did you take your bike? You coming from California, from Maine, from Colorado? I mean, how did you get here? I mean, you had to, you had to rely pretty significantly on fossil fuels and oil and gas just to get here. So, Again, I think the hypocrisy is just absurd with this group. Uh, they're talking about, on the flip side, which you talked about, taking away traditional energy sources that has made this country great. And now, with 40, 50 years of the, of the EPAs in existence, we have clean air and clean water. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Yet these mm. people want you to believe that if you don't do green, then you're somehow anti-American. And that's wrong. I mean, to this, right now, even after the explosion in natural gas, coal-fired power plants in America are responsible for 33 percent of our electricity. But what are we going to replace that with, wind and solar? Yeah, yeah. You also um, point out that there is a, a the uh, these organizations uh, Stayer and the Rockefeller Foundation are very partisan in their uh, in their giving. So it's not it's not just a uh, a nonpartisan um, effort to influence policy, but they are very partisan in, in terms of uh, where their money is spent. Yeah, I, I think partisanship is just where it shows up. They're really sort of agnostic when it comes to politics. They found a home in the Democratic Party uh, because that tends to be where more, you know, they tend to lean more socialist, and that tends to be what they're pushing at the top level. But really, in the end, you have a, a group of very scary, in my opinion, global elitists who believe a couple things. First of all, they believe that they should be the ones to control the energy source. And don't think this is anything else but that. If you look at, again, I mentioned the coal industry. You have a series of family-owned and run businesses in the southeastern part of America that are now defunct, and 93% of the income in that industry is gone. But yet, as I said, 33% of the grid is still relying on it. So where is it going? Well, they want to be able to control that. They want to, we already saw in the aftermath of the coal implosion, George Soros, who was another one of those mm-hmm. billionaires pushing this agenda, 
was down in coal country buying up some of the stranded assets. Coal will always be a part of the mix. It's never You're not going to run L.A. or Chicago or Portland, Oregon on wind and solar. It's never going to happen. Yet they're out there pushing this fantasy land as a way, essentially, to take over control of the energy grid, and that's what this game is about. And in the short term, they're making a ton of money, like Tom Steyer, off of green energy. These guys were in first on the green energy boom, and they had no other, no better friend than, than Obama in giving them energy grants to essentially prop up this industry, this green energy industry that would not exist without significant subsidies. Well, I appreciate your encouraging us to look behind the curtain to see who's who's pulling the, the levers, because I think that's important. It, it balances the uh, our understanding of, of who's doing what and for what purpose, and we're not getting that kind of information anywhere else. Now, tell us a, a little bit about um, the organization that you are president of, the Energy and Environment Legal Institute. Uh, I think listeners might be interested in, in more information. Sure. You can find us on the web at eelegal.org. We are a very small, David, in the fight against a bunch of Goliaths. Um, but we use, uh, we've used primarily legal strategies, particularly in, under the Obama administration, both public information requests, or FOIAs as they're nicknamed, and, mm-hmm. and also at the state level to expose the, the extensive collusion that's going on between governments, green uh, activists and these billionaires. And where we were necessary, we've used um, strategic litigation as well. We, for example, went into Colorado and sued over their renewable energy standards. Uh, so we use the legal process. We also do some investigatory research. I've done few reports on Tom Steyer and, and what he's really up to in the Sierra Club, et cetera. So we uh, kind of run the gamut. We're small, but we got some small, uh, smart people around us who, you know, who see this for what it is. And, you know, we try in our own way to get the message out, and we appreciate, you know, the opportunity here to do that, because this is where it's coming from. It's coming from talk radio. It's coming from the alternative media sources, because as you said, they're not getting it from the corporate media. Yeah, absolutely not. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. I appreciate having the opportunity uh, to talk about it. Well, thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. Again, Craig Richardson is the president of the Energy and Environment Legal Institute. You can find them online for more information. Uh, really f- interesting pieces on these individuals as I learned the names and, of course, the uh, uh, the Rockefeller Family Foundation, and look again behind the, the, the curtain, if you will, to learn more about them. Uh, in particular, um, Bill McKibben um, and uh, 350.org that's fueling much of what we're uh, what we're seeing. And again, he made reference to the People's Climate March. That is the other bookend uh, to the events focusing on, in quote, science um, this past weekend and then the weekend to come. So uh, make note that that event is taking place. I don't know if there will be a, pre- a Portland presence in this uh, demonstration, but I'm guessing there most likely will be, and we'll let you know when we find more information. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Ted Bromond. He's a senior research fellow in Anglo-American relations at their Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the French elections. It can be a little bit confusing. Words like liberal and conservative are being used, uh, applied to the candidates, but what do they mean in the French context? That's coming up next here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, French politics was shaken to its core on Sunday as far right populist 
uh, Marine Le Pen and centrist Emmanuel Macron advance to a runoff presidential election after the first round of voting. They do it differently in France. And here to talk with us not only about that, but about the meaning of the outcome is Ted Bromond. He is a senior research fellow in Anglo-American relations at the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for joining us. Great to be with you and your listeners. Thank you. First of all, let's put the French election in broader uh, perspective and, and context. How important is what happens in France to the European Union and just generally to the international community? Well, it's very important to the European Union. The European Union was really created as a partnership between France and Germany. And if France were led by someone who really rejected French participation in the EU, it's very hard to see how the euro and the European Union could survive in their current form. Uh, France is obviously a significant member of the Western Alliance, a significant economy, an important member of the European Union. Uh, so in that regard, it does matter to the wider world as well. Now, these two candidates are quite different from one another. Um, one is a centrist. The other is considered um, ultra-right, uh, although uh, defined differently than we might understand it. Um, here in the U.S. Before we talk about the candidates themselves, let's talk about the process of of selecting a president in France. Uh, These two are facing off after a previous election that all the names of candidates uh, were a part of. Yeah, the the French presidential system is essentially designed to uh, elect and create a really strong presidency, uh, designed by uh, Charles de Gaulle uh, when the foundation of the French Fifth Republic in the 1950s. So all of the presidential contenders face off in round one. The top two candidates survive and move through to round two to be held in a week and a half uh, from now. And at that point, the top vote-getter is elected president. So you could have, and in fact, you did have, you know, 10, 12 uh, contenders in the first round, but you come down to two and only two in the second round, which tends to concentrate the vote towards, at least in the past, the mainstream establishment bigger parties, because all the smarter, smaller parties get knocked out in the first round. Well, it's been rather interesting this time around in France, uh, sort of a familiar scenario in that the um, the... Um, institutional politicians, if you will, are not the two big names at the top of of the ticket. Uh, Talk a little bit about these two candidates and where they fit in politics in France. Yeah, and, and, you know, what I said earlier about, you know, the the smaller parties being knocked out, the bigger parties surviving, that's the theory. But for the first time in the history of the French Republic this time around, uh, neither the Gaullists, the center-right party, nor the Socialists, the center-left party, actually made it through to the final round. So that is a very important, a very significant change. You really have two insurgent movements fighting it out here. Uh, Macron is what I would call a Greenfields candidate. Uh, you call him centrist, it's very hard to know what he stands for. Politically, he's a protege of the outgoing president, Hollande, who was a socialist, uh, but he started his own political party, and it's hard to know if he's centrist, if he's a socialist in disguise, or if he is simply an attractive face uh, seeking to become the president of France. Uh, Marie Le Pen uh, is a much better-known political figure, uh, the second Le Pen uh, to lead the French Nationalist Party, uh, which her father uh, largely founded and led for a number of years. They had since had an enormous falling out, uh, father and daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you called uh, her earlier far right. 
that's perhaps true in the French context. Yes. Uh, her economics are, by American standards, far left or socialist. Uh, her attitude towards free enterprise is absolutely not that of the American conservatives. Uh, she's rather uh, a ho- rather hostile to what she, towards she calls uh, Anglo-Saxon conservatism. She's a skeptic about NATO and the Western alliance. So again, uh, in our terms, more of a left-wing position than a right-wing position. Uh, so it's it's uh, the French nationalist position is is hard to classify left or right in American political terms. It's a bit of both. Yeah, well, I appreciate that clarification. What's best for for France at this point, and and then perhaps a separate question: What's best for the European Union if it is to survive? Well, I mean, the French people will decide what's best for France. Far far be for me to say it. Uh, this is a difficult choice because you have an insurgent candidate, Le Pen. Uh, face, facing off with a extremely bland, essentially establishment candidate. The difficulty with the establishment candidate, Macron, is that if he wins, his policies are likely to only make the conditions that made Le Pen potentially electable worse. Uh, if you look at a map of France, she dominated in all the parts of France that don't touch the Atlantic Ocean with the exception of Paris. Uh, he dominated in all the parts that touched the Atlantic Ocean, pretty much. In other words, she represents the part of France that's economically stagnating, and he represents the part of France that's prospering. But his policies are not likely to make more of France prosper. And that means that in five years, when we face this election yet again, either uh, Marie Le Pen or her successor is likely to have even more parts of France that aren't prosperous, aren't doing well, and are more likely to vote for her. So I think this is a bit of a a no-win situation. In terms of the EU, they obviously want Macron to win. There's no question about Mm -hmm. that. But the more France goes along economically underperforming, the tougher everything related to the euro and the EU are going to get. Why should we care on this side of the pond what happens in this French presidential election, or should we? Well, uh, we should always care what happens in countries that, for whatever their political vicissitudes, are more our friends or not uh, than not. But uh, the specific reason is that uh, a Le Pen victory would almost certainly bring economic policies that would be extremely bad for France, bad for Europe, and bad for the United States. Macron victory is liable also to bring policies. Unfortunately, they're bad for France, Europe, and the United States, though in a longer-run sense. Uh, Le Pen is also likely to be anti-NATO. She is specifically and directly anti-American, which is not something that I take very kindly to. And regardless of what happens, the economic future of France doesn't look particularly good. And that's something that because of our economic and security relationships with Europe, we really should care about. Well, it will be interesting to find out what happens over these next uh, few weeks. The uh, the runoff uh, or, or the next uh, vote comes in uh, in June or in May. I wasn't altogether clear when that happens. Not this coming weekend, but the weekend there. The weekend after, so May the 7th. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for helping us better understand what's happening there and uh, perhaps what to look for. Absolutely. Appreciate it very much. Again, my guest, Ted Bromond, is a senior research fellow in Anglo-American relations at the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation on the French elections in which Marine Le Pen and Emmanuel Macron 
um, advance to the second runoff round on May the 7th. And it certainly does have the potential to have a significant impact on the European Union, but certainly on France as it uh, moves forward as well. Well, we are um, going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, we'll let you know a little bit of what's coming up the remainder of the week in, in case you missed that when we reviewed it on Monday. We're also going to talk about uh, the uh, man who was um, the victim of an arson at a Denny's restaurant just about a week ago. There's an update on his condition. And I want to remind you that the deadline for the May 16th election in Oregon is uh, to register to vote, I should say, is Today at uh, at midnight, if you do it online, but you'd have to have been at an election office uh, earlier in the day for that uh, for that uh, way to register to work. But we'll tell you more about that when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. We're back. The final the final segment, ladies and gentlemen, of the Georgine Rice Show. A couple of things I want to. Uh, uh, draw your attention to one has to do with a, a student at George Fox. They're grieving at George Fox University. A student was uh, declared missing on Saturday and they hadn't found him until early yesterday. Uh, they found him dead in his car on Monday evening. I bring it up because the George Fox community is uh, is grieving. I'm not going to go into the details. You can find that on local news sites. Uh, but they're grieving the loss of this student, according to George Fox's vice president of student life, Brad Lau, uh, in a statement, this is not the conclusion to the search that we were hoping and praying for. It appears the young man ended his life while the investigation continues. Would you remember to keep George Fox University, its students, faculty, um, and staff in your prayers? This is a very difficult uh, event, and the prayer is, the hope is that through this unfortunate uh, circumstance, uh, that the young people would be challenged to press into Christ uh, in their walk. Uh, also, I wanted to bring you an update on the man um, burned in an arson attack at the Denny's restaurant last week. Uh, we've learned that he is on life support, according to his family, uh, on Monday night. Clackamas County Sheriff's deputies have not publicly identified the man, but court documents say he is Scott Randstrom, uh, the subject of an online crowdfunding effort to raise some $100,000 for medical bills. As you can expect there are going to be significant medical bills um, due to this uh, this crime, an update uh, to the GoFundMe page Monday night said that Randstrom is still in critical condition and on life support. The update read, Scotty's family would like to thank everyone for their support and prayers. We appreciate the incredible generosity and kindness that you've shown. Deshaun James Swanger, 24, think about that, 24 years old, was arrested Thursday on accusations of attempted murder in that attack, according to Clackamas County Sheriff's deputies. The agency said Swanger came into the Denny's restaurant near the Clackamas Town Center on Wednesday, sat at a booth adjacent to the 69-year-old Randstrom. He did not know the man, but he poured gasoline on him, then lit him on fire. Swanger then ran out of the restaurant, according to deputies. Thankfully, there was CCTV and images of the uh, of the 24-year-old were seen and uh, he was uh, apprehended and now being held. An agency spokesman previously said the attack appears to be random and is not being investigated as a hate crime. Investigators are also looking into whether Swanger was involved in a movie trans uh, movie theater arson attempt a few days before. Um, the circumstances are very similar. However, there was no effort, according to the victim, to ignite 
uh, him or her after they were doused with some flammable liquid. So thankfully, that ended up being quite different. Dousing someone in a restaurant setting would be, I would think, a bit easier than in a theater where things could have gone much more dramatically wrong involving far more people. But thankfully, uh, there was no effort to ignite that individual. But police are looking into whether or not uh, they're related. It seems difficult to imagine they wouldn't be. Uh, given the details. But nonetheless, that investigation continues. Also, I wanted to remind you that today is the deadline to register to vote in Oregon's May 16th election. That's going to determine the fate of school board members, local bond measures and other nonpartisan contests. Now, these kinds of elections tend um, to you know, get a ho-hum from a lot of people. They don't show up. And that's precisely why many of the issues that are on the ballot are on the ballot this time around. They're hoping You're going to be disinterested. You're not going to participate because, well, it's one of these less significant elections. But there's some pretty significant things on that ballot. And again, they're counting on the majority of residents to simply sit this one out. Well, voters can register online, provided they have a current Oregon driver's license or non-driver ID card. You could also have done it earlier in the day. You had until five o'clock at the local elections office. But. I just mentioned that in passing since we're way past that. Not sure if you are registered to vote in Oregon? Well, you can check that online in just seconds. The most expensive measure on the ballot this May will be the Portland Public Schools $790 million school construction bond. If you care about your taxes, if you care about education, if you care about our community, you need to participate, if for no other reason, for this. We're also electing school board members, and they have a significant impact on the course that education takes in the Portland area. So, again, these are important issues, even though it's one of those elections where fewer people tend to be involved. There are school board elections in almost every community. There are questions such as Washington County's police operations levy, Lake Oswego's $187 million school bond, Bond, Salem's $62 million public safety bond, and a proposal to grant more independence to Portland's city auditor. Now, turnout in odd-year elections in Oregon is generally quite poor, and those who support measures that you might oppose are counting on the lower numbers. They're lo- more likely to pass given your inactivity. Two years ago, just 22% of voters in Clackamas County, for example, cast ballots, just 18% in Multnomah County. In Washington County, The turnout there was merely 17 percent. So a small number of your neighbors determined whether or not your taxes were going to go up, the course that education was likely to take. And the issues on those ballots are as significant as uh, any other. So I hope you'll take seriously this opportunity to participate. Now, here in the state of Oregon, of course, our ballots are mailed to us. So you don't have to go any place to get one. But it can very easily sit on the dining table, sit on the coffee table, get uh, caught up with all of the junk mail. And you end up, oh, I intended to participate in that and didn't. And then you get your tax bill or you read the headlines that this uh, passed and this is the result. Well, make sure that you're uh, deciding the future of your own community by participating in this election. Again, it's uh, May 16th. You'll get your ballot in the mail there quite easily if you're um, uh, red, if you've got a driver's license under uh, the new policy in Oregon, chances are you're already registered. But check that out online to make sure. And you have until midnight or 1201 or something like that uh, tonight to make sure you are registered so that you will receive that ballot and you will uh, be among those who dis- determine the course of um, what happens in Multnomah County and the city of Portland and Beaverton and uh, so on. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Fan Newton, the author of In Search of the King, Turning the Pursuit of Meaning into the Discovery of God. Now, most of us, I think, 
uh, are pursuing a life of meaning. But in that process, if we're honest, we're also going to discover God. And so we'll, we'll talk about that, uh, that question. You might help some around you uh, to get to the, the right conclusion as well. On Thursday, we'll talk with David Brog. He's the author of Reclaiming Israel's History, Roots, Rights, and the Struggle for Peace. That's on Thursday. And then on Friday, we'll lighten up, assuming there are no big news headlines. Well, I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering portions of today's program, James Blind for engineering portions of today's program, and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.